0: Hey there friends thank you for joining me for the very last episode of 2020 what a year this has been from bushfires at the beginning of the year to global pandemics and i think we can safely say that this year has had it all for me personally this year has been such a roller coaster i jumped on a ride at the end of 2019 and started up Melbourne's first plant-based butcher shop with the incredible Amanda Leflin. This was an amazing experience in which I learned so, so, so much. And I just wanna thank you personally, Amanda, for that opportunity and making this possible for us. I jumped off that ride midway through the year, which was a really tough decision for me. Being a type A personality and always wanting to strive for more has enabled me to have some amazing opportunities and connect with some incredible people but the truth is I was exhausted. I committed to operating multiple businesses as well as studying and that was extremely challenging. Something had to give before I crashed and burned and unfortunately it was the butcher shop but what a journey that was and the Kind Butcher is still fully operating and is absolutely thriving so I'd highly recommend you guys go check that one out on Union Road in Ascot Vale. From the podcast front, I've literally had to pinch myself multiple times. The connections I've made from this show with people I never would have expected to has been so extremely humbling and quite frankly, just wow. So a big thank you to all of the incredible guests I've had on the show this year. It's been an absolute pleasure listening and learning from your journeys. I want to extend that thank you to the Euphoria Health community, wherever you may be. This year I've received countless messages from people all around the globe and just to see the impact that this content is having on your lives is the most amazing feeling. So thank you guys for your ongoing support. I really appreciate it. If you're new to the show, you're probably wondering who in the world is speaking. Firstly, welcome and thank you for tuning in. And secondly, my name is Matt Sapala, and I am your host. I created this platform to help educate and inspire people to lead a happier, healthier, more conscious life. This show is heavily focused around plant-based nutrition, movement, holistic living, and sustainability, and if you're tuning into the show, you're probably already immersed in the health and wellness field, or you're jumping on the train, and I would love to welcome you all on, and if you ever have any questions about anything, feel free to reach out. This week's special guest needs absolutely no introduction a lady who touches the souls of many each and every day through her quirky personality and drive to succeed. It was a real pinch me moment sitting down with Sarah Davidson this week on the show. You guys may know her from Instagram as Spoonful of Sarah. Sarah is notorious for helping others find what truly makes their heart sing and she does this by sharing her experience leaving the traditional nine-to-five lawyer life and starting a matcha tea company from the ground up with her partner, Nick. From there on in, the Funtrepreneur was born and Sarah explains more about this journey today during the show. I think there is no better time to share Sarah's journey with you all and hopefully inspire you guys to find that work-life balance, because after all, we work to live, we don't live to work. Sarah has just released her book, Seize the Yay, during a global pandemic, which obviously had its own challenges, and is also the host of the Seize the Yay podcast, which I've been a long-time listener, and you can find this podcast on iTunes and Spotify, it will change life. I really enjoyed sitting down with Sarah this week on the podcast. There were so many aha moments for me, and I can't wait to hear the feedback from you all. Sorry for the slightly longer introduction this week, friends. It was really hard to summarise 2020, but we got there. Happy listening, and I'll see you all on the other side. Sarah Davidson, welcome to the Euphoria Health podcast. How are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, so pumped to have you on the show, my friend. We were just chatting before off-air about how our dogs are notorious for barking as soon as we hit record. How's that been for you, recording podcasts via Zoom with with your little puppy around?
1: (laughs) Such a joy. I mean, it's, you know, if anything humanizes us all and makes us all you know I think it's a great leveler having to work from home and record from home because you see you know people have kids people have dogs there's all these like random noises in the background but it actually makes you realize like we're all the same you know we're all facing the same challenges trying to make an office in our bedroom and make sure the you know private noises are as quiet as possible but yeah he loves to I feel like he knows when I'm podcasting and he's like, I just want to, I just want to, you know, make a guest appearance. He's just like, he's he's such, I'm a stage mum, So I'm like, come on, baby. Like, you know, get your bark on air.
0: Little co-host. What's his name? Paul. Paul. I love it. Paul and Buddy. (laughs) So you might hear them throughout the show, folks, but um, don't be alarmed. They're just probably barking in the postie or something like that. (laughs) Sarah, I'm so, so pumped to get into this conversation. We've been in the pipeline for a number of weeks, but like as we're chatting off air, isolation has just been a whirlwind sort of experience this year for everyone. It's like really hard to imagine. Sometimes I have to pinch myself and, and, you know wake almost like i'm waking myself up because this is something that we never could have expected and i want to dive into that a little bit later on but sarah before we head into that you have an incredible podcast platform and that's called CCA everyone would know about that i'm a huge time fan and a long time listener and i absolutely <laughs> love the intro the jingle <laughs> <laughs> it is you know- my favorite podcast intro ever, and I was hoping for the listeners you'd be able to recite that for us before we get the podcast going.
1: <laughs> oh my god, put me on the spot, man. Okay, let me see. Um, do you know what's also really funny? So many people, I love that you call it a jingle, so many people call it a rap. I'm like, dude, I'm not, rap- I'm not a rapper, like, I'm just saying words, so I'm not rapping, but <laughs> it goes. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a podcast to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad, the ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. I'm virtually clapping to you. That was awesome. Awesome.
1: I didn't even know I knew those words. So, wow.
0: <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you learn funny. something
1: new every day.
0: <laughs> definitely. Definitely. It's probably on a pre-recorded loop that you just add into the start of your podcast all the time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And I don't even listen to it. Cause I just like kind of, you know, copy and paste it into the start and I don't re-listen. Like I listen when I'm editing, but I don't re-listen once it's up. So I don't, you know, more people, like I, I sometimes, um, when obviously when we could do events in person, There'd be people who could recite it back to me because they listen to it every episode. And I was like, you know it better than I do. This is amazing.
0: <laughs> it's really, really incredible to have that. I feel like it sets the tone for the podcast and it really sums up you as an interviewer and basically what the show's all about. I'd love to unpack how you came up with that little jingle. And um, did you have some assistance in write, writing like that? Or do you have a secret Eminem side to you?
1: <laughs> Definitely a secret Eminem side that just comes out, you know, a few drinks in. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it just, I, this is, I mean, the creative side of me that loves writing jingles and things that rhyme and kind of getting a point across with the most creative use of words possible, that's the side that led me to the whole philosophy of Seize Your Yay. I mean, even the fact that it's a pun based on Seize the Day is kind of instructive of, you know, my whole journey that I did start off my life as very nerdy on one side, very creative on the other. And then as soon as I got into the workforce, the burden of social expectations and success and what other people think is worthy, you know, that all started to really muddy the waters and I lost that creative side of me. But now that she's back out in the open and totally free to make up jingles and make up raps, I just sit down and I think I was trying to write the introduction and I just wanted it to be different. Like there's a lot of podcasts out there. There were less when I first started, but still I wanted it to really stand out. And I've always loved writing little poems and I just sat down and just, it's like verbal diarrhea. Like it just all came out and I was (laughs) like, wow, there you go. Like didn't know that was in my brain, but uh, that's exactly what I wanted to say. And uh, I've stuck with it. I haven't thought about changing it. The only time I had to change it was We got married end of last year and I had to change from Holloway to Davidson. So I had to record the whole thing again. But other than that, I kind of like it.
0: (laughs) So good. I absolutely love it as well. And like I said before, it sums up the podcast and we're going to unpack all of the incredible things that you are up to, Sarah. It's so, so inspiring. And I know a lot of the listeners will be able to take a lot out of that. But let's bring it right back to the beginning and paint the picture for the listeners of what was life like for Sarah growing up.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. All the way back to the beginning. So I now have connected all the dots of why I'm so fascinated by sliding doors moments and how very small events in our stories can actually lead to completely drastic changes. So my very earliest event in the the timeline of Sarah (laughs) was a very, very big sliding doors moment. So I was actually born in an orphanage in South Korea and adopted by a beautiful Australian family when I was six months old. So um, I think I took my first plane, which is maybe why I like travel so much when I was, yeah, five and a half months came to Australia, had a beautiful upbringing with um, two families. So my parents both on both sides of their family grew up in rural country towns. So we spent, we grew up in the city, but we spent a lot of time on dairy farms and out in the countryside and enjoying just how beautiful, you know, regional Victoria and, and Australia really is. And just had so much love and support you know my family have always told me that it takes a village to raise a child and we had so many aunties and uncles and cousins around and lots of family friends and I just remember having a fun time a really fun time we were just allowed to be children and run around and play and my parents were so I think one of like this is going to sound so bad but one of the interesting things about My heritage is you see me and it's like oh you're an Asian you must have had really strict Asian parents who wanted you to be a lawyer and that's why you became a lawyer but my (laughs) parents are they're white country bumpkin Australians because I was adopted so I never had that you know doctor lawyer nurse pharmacist kind of pressure my parents were like be who you want you know (laughs) follow your dreams and they wanted us to explore all parts of us so you know, whenever we wanted to try a new sport, that encouraged us to try a new sport. I did ballet, we did painting. Like I would just remember feeling really supported to explore everything that life had to offer and read books and do music. And um, yeah, we just had a beautiful childhood. My younger brother is also adopted from Korea. Uh, we picked him up when I was four. So from the time I was four, I was never alone. We uh, were best friends my whole childhood and um, we're completely different, but really, really close. And I got into ballet very early, which was my first great love. I did, you know, like lots of little girls do. They they love being ballerinas in tutus and sort of dancing around. But in the first indication that I was a perfectionist with an A-type personality that wanted to be an overachiever, I pretty much made it my career from the time I was three. And I actually ended up working in the Australian ballet. So I went professional as my first career. And I think ballet, balancing ballet and school, really formed my primary school years because I took it very seriously and um, got to the point at the end of I think in grade six was when I first got into the Australian Ballet School, and I just remember that being again. I wouldn't, I didn't want to leave school like a lot of ballerinas do at that age. I loved the really nerdy side of maths and sciences, but I also loved the really creative side of dancing, and that carried into high school as well, um, and ballet gave me just so much discipline and time management and I think really got me onto that idea of self-betterment like if you put in time and training and discipline and hours you can really get a lot out of yourself and goal setting was also something that I think came from ballet and I think comes from lots of kids who do sports at a young age Um, and that kept going until about year nine when I got into McGrob which is an academic entry selective high school that my mum had taught out my auntie had taught at, and they knew just the incredible opportunities that were afforded you if you could go there it kind of offered you the resources of a private school but it was a government school and set you up really well for kind of whatever future you wanted to have and knew that the nerdy side of me would love it but it involved obviously Putting ballet to kind of like, I, I had a really, my first sort of fork in the road choice was in year nine when I either went full time and gave ballet a good chance, or I stayed at school, finished school, and then sort of took the academic path. So that was a very difficult time, but mum sort of sat me down then and had conversations. I can look back and think of a few pivotal conversations that have really formed everything. And she's sort of always drilled this idea into me of what is the once in a lifetime opportunity? And ballet will always be there but it's very hard to go back to school and start you know as a mature age student to finish high school so she was like just do me one thing just finish school and then you can do whatever you want you can you don't have to go to uni you can be a full-time ballerina but just finish school so you've always got that to fall back on and i think that's kind of how i ended up making a lot of decisions in my life like what is the once in a lifetime opportunity and what's the thing that will always be there later And that then led to a very rebellious phase where I realized that training and having a rigorous schedule was fun, but boys and alcohol was way more fun. And how had I missed out on all these parties when I was like eating really strictly and exercising and worrying about, you know, being the perfect ballerina. I was like, oh my God, boys parties. So I had a bit of a wild child, like weirdly rebellious phase for a year 9, 10 and 11. And I was a bit of a disaster, which I still can't believe. I just don't recognize that self at all but people who knew me back then would just not recognise the me that I am now just god I was such just so naughty um but then I got it all together on time for year 12 gosh thank goodness the heavens are looking down on me and, <laughs> and realized again that's the time when you kind of have to make a choice you think it's your forever choice definitely isn't but back then I was like god what do I want to be when I grow up and I didn't know but I knew that I had still kept that sort of really nerdy side alive, but also had done every extracurricular music, drama, arty-farty activity as well. Um, So I chose, I I worked really hard to just keep my options open, ended up getting into law and did law arts. Um, And that then kept, again, that balance of the two sides of my personality going until um, that lasted all the way through uni.
0: Yeah, Sarah, I absolutely love that. And I I really resonated with a part that you said about your upbringing in terms of like having that aspect of community, whether that's within community sport or, you know, community dance or even just community as a general. I think it's super, super crucial for kids and even adults um, to have that element of belonging and that aspect of community. And you see that evident these days through group fitness classes, and they're really thriving because people are going to, you know, going to, I'll use F45 as an example, like they're going to that forty-five minute sweat session where they can completely switch off. They can see their mates and obviously, you know, work and get a sweat up in that in that time. And I think it's really, really amazing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think that's something that randomly. I mean, fast forward a couple of years. We after I ended up moving into business, uh, the second business that we opened was a cafe called Matcha Milk Bar. And one of the big things that we discovered in looking into opening this cafe, which actually, if you guys don't know already, is a plant-based venue. Uh, The reason why we did that was we discovered the blue zones, which are the five areas of the world where people live dramatically longer than anywhere else, like tiny geographical zones where they outlive people, you know, really, really close to them around the countries that these areas are in, but they live into their hundreds, you know, way longer than anyone else. And there's been all these studies, of course, into why they have this extra longevity, like what makes them able to live not just longer, but better. So they're actually active and healthy into those hundred years, not sort of you know in nursing homes or in hospitals. And obviously plant-based eating ended up as emerging as one of the things that they, uh, they not because they're vegan, but because they only have access to mainly plant-based diets, but a huge factor is community. So for example, in Okinawa in Japan, which has the most 100 hundred girls in the world, there's a whole tradition that there's no such thing as nursing home. There's no word for that in Japanese, the elders in society, they all meet together a couple of times a week and they, they remain connected to others in the community. They can't just wither and lose friendships. And, you know, they, they feel relevant and a part of the community for their whole lives, which is what keeps them so like invigorated and energetic. And that's really stuck with me. I realized age is a mindset and a lifestyle and, in these communities those people just refuse to become irrelevant and so they do keep up their friendship groups and they play things like bridge and mahjong and they have meetings every week and they stay connected and i think 2020 has reminded all of us of the importance of that level of connection because even though a lot of us have a a, you know an introvert side i have a definite hermit side that loves to stay at home and be a bum and not be very social but you suffer for it because humanity is beautiful when you connect with other people
0: yeah, definitely, Sarah, and I love the Blue Zones population. And I refer to that with my clients all the time in my coaching philosophy, and that's I reinforce to them that our way of living, our Western way of living, is incredible that we have access to be able to work from home, and we can sit at a desk and connect with people all around the globe from our laptop, which is amazing in itself. Mm. But we look at their movement activities, and they're living the longest because they're moving, um, what's the word, Um incidentally is the word I was looking for. So they're, they're doing a lot of incidental exercise and they don't have any real dedicated exercise sessions. But here in our Western society, we sort of swing the balance the other way and we we allow one hour or 45 minutes of dedicated exercise, which is fantastic to do. But then we're sedentary for the other time that we're actually awake. So I try and encourage my clients to incorporate more incidental exercise and seven days of 10,000 steps or above is better than three days of movement for 45 minutes alone so we're trying to swing the balance and and learn what those guys are doing and why they're living to be 100 and and even further than that and adopting them to our lifestyle
1: yeah yeah totally i think that incidental movement is so important and like dysfunctional movement like it's weird when you look at history that we've made exercise a task when really it's just moving your body like (laughs) I mean I'm glad that we've made it a task because it's really fun that there are classes and places where you can go and connect with other people and and, you know have a structured motivated movement but it's yeah it is a strange thing that in between those classes we're very very still and in the same place Um, so I love that idea of I actually um, when I was at the law firm I found it really hard to I mean the whole function of your job is literally to sit at a desk. So I would overload on water so that I had no choice but to get up every, you know, 15 minutes because I needed to pee. But I was like, this is my inbuilt way to make myself actually move during the day. And then I would... I made a pact, I think it was like in my second year that I would never use the lift. I would always use the stairs. Even if I had to walk seven levels down, I would use the lift obviously to get up to like the war firm, which was a couple of levels in a building. But between the levels, I would like not allow myself to use the lift. Little things like that actually really help you. They add up and they keep your joints really mobile and they make sure that you actually get up and move around during the day. It's really important.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I love that little overloading on water. So you physically have to get up at all. <laughs> now, Sarah, I, I, want... I don't
1: know how healthy that is for you, but I'm like, if it makes me get up and not sit there for hours in a row, I'm doing it.
0: <laughs> I think the movement outweighs all that. I love that. Now, Sarah, I want to bring it back a little bit before we take it further and talk a little bit about the adoption from Korea as a really young girl. You can hear Buddy in the background barking. I hope that's not. He wants to there. hear
1: about it too, yeah. of course.
0: <laughs> yeah. How has that sort of, you know, incredible journey influence your outlook on on life later in your years like obviously being born on this planet is incredibly like the odds are stacked against you but then obviously having the the odds further against you being you know adopted and giving Mm. life in Australia like it's crazy how has that influenced your perception later on in life
1: yeah it's a really great question I think it's something that when we were younger we definitely took for granted as just part of our story. Like it was a cool, you know, cool heritage, made us different. It was very unique and we loved our family. But because we were adopted before we were old enough to remember anything, we had no identity other than just growing up as Aussies, you know, like there was like all things when you're younger you don't really appreciate what your parents go through to bring you to where you are you don't appreciate all the things that you have all you can see is like the toy that you don't have that you want and like how important your footy game is coming this weekend you know like I actually don't think it really hit me or I don't really think I reflected much on how it formed me until much later in life if anything it just made uh, you know for a funny story why I was Asian and my parents were completely white like I would just make jokes (laughs) about it we definitely had some some bullying and some questions and just a feeling of being a bit other, like having something a bit different, but because our parents had really embraced the story and always armed us for those questions and never hid it. I mean, it's very hard to hide when you're totally different nationalities, but you know, in some situations with adoption, it's, you know, people don't find out until they're much older. So there was no sense of resentment or deception or lack in our story it's always been a a wonderful part of our identities but what it really did as I've reflected as I've gotten older is I've always had a problem with burnout and overdoing everything like in a good way I've always been incredibly motivated to just make the most of every opportunity but maybe too much to the point where I constantly burn out because I just don't have like anything in my brain that tells me to slow down and I think why I've done so many different things and why I have why I constantly have this fountain of motivation and excitement for life is because of that. It's because I know how different it could have been. It's because like I, uh, gratitude comes very easily for me because when people say, I'll oh, think how different it could have been, I can actually literally think how different it could have been. I can literally say if I, but for one person or what, but for my parents' decision and nine years of paperwork and coming to get me, I would have grown up in what was the third world country back then. I don't have active memories of that. And I don't actually live in Korea to see it, but I would have not had nearly the opportunities I have now. Women occupied a very different position in that society when I was growing, you know, in my generation, I probably wouldn't have had access to education. I wouldn't have had so many things. So I think the biggest thing it's left on me is just a sense of appreciation for everything, for every opportunity and inability to, to say no to anything, because everything that comes my way is something I'm so lucky to have because I'm lucky to be here at all so it's definitely made me love life and have a great appreciation for never letting something pass you by for learning from every opportunity and for keeping real positivity about the fact that even things that don't really go very well they're always teaching you something and it could always be worse but the other thing is that I probably didn't it's probably not as obvious a result of the adoption but it's given us a lot of resilience because we were really different at primary school and a lot of kids I think who don't have adoption necessarily as their difference but colour of their skin or heritage in other ways or any any other thing that makes you different, sometimes it's socioeconomic status, like any child who has gone through being different at some point in their life, often there's some unpleasant experiences that come from that but I don't ever wish that I hadn't gone through any of those because they really give you a thick skin. They learn, they teach you how to appreciate those differences for what they are rather than wanting to be the same as everyone of course you go through the stage of wanting to just be the same as everyone there were years where i totally was in denial that i was asian and i just thought i was like a white country bumpkin you know blonde which was obviously not true (laughs) but i think it it's also formed a part of my story where i've i can't like i can't change that i'm adopted but I can own the story and turn it into something really positive, and that's something that is invaluable in a world where you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. Difference is only now becoming something we embrace. Before, you know, people are scared of what's different. There's always been a lot of discrimination against people who are different for whatever reason. Um, so I think that that thick skinnedness and uh, ability to know your know the value of your story even if other people maybe don't at the time is also something that I think has armed me really well that came from the adoption
0: yeah I, I'm blown away by that Sarah as well because like as you mentioned before the switch could have been flicked and you could have been living this whole other life in a third world country and not have access to the opportunities you have and to see you do the incredible things that you're doing and, and be so grateful about that is really inspiring. So if you guys take anything out of that, it's just to, you know, really appreciate what you have. And, And it's really hard because you don't appreciate what you don't know, or you don't appreciate what you have and until it's gone there. So I think if, if you guys can take anything out of that story, it's definitely appreciation and gratitude.
1: Oh, thank you. That's very kind.
0: (laughs) I want to take a little bit of a 180 turn, Sarah, and talk a little bit about how you got involved in the concrete jungle and talk to us a little bit about the lawyer life. Is it exactly like Harvey Specter suits? I want to know.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's always the bar that we set for ourselves. That's definitely what I thought it was going to be like. And I went into mergers and acquisitions, which is kind of the the rock star area. If there's a hierarchy in law, like M&A lawyers definitely think they're the business. Like it's um, where we wheel and deal, like we're always closing deals and doing big share sales and things that are in the news. And it's, it's, there are definitely moments of champagne popping. And I bought in so much to that whole, like wearing my suit and going into the city. And I actually really enjoyed it for most of it. And I think, I, again, I got to the end of my law degree and had done what I'd always done. I I think being interested in a lot of things actually almost makes it more confusing because it's, you have so much choice then. Like it's so hard to know what you're passionate about when you're passionate about lots of things. So I spent uni doing exactly what I did at school. I kind of did all my art subjects were were languages and really arty farty. And I did lots of, again, lots of travel and extracurricular activities, but then my law degree was very academic and I went super academic on, in that side of things, but I kept both sides alive. And then I got to the end and still didn't know what that meant. Like most people who finish uni, most of us don't actually know what we want to do. It's very rare that you're like, yes, I definitely want to do this. And half the time the job that you end up going into doesn't exist anyway. So again, I was like, well, I I don't know what I want to do, but I I need to keep, for that reason, I need to keep as many doors open as I can. And commercial law is something that a lot of careers start from. If you can get into a good firm, you don't have to be a lawyer forever. You can go into politics, diplomacy, like a law degree is not going to close any doors like medicine might, for example, in terms of how narrow your skills become if you don't actually want to do that thing. So I ended up trying to get into a law firm there was a really clear system for getting a job a graduate job at a firm Um, at the top tier firms you had to sort of do a clerkship first which is like just an internship and then you apply for a grad position and it's a very clear process and I did that process I got into the firm that I wanted and I was so incredibly grateful and started my career I think again so grateful to be there and to have a job. The GFC happened while I was at uni. So we knew it was going to be very difficult compared to what it once was. So I, every moment that I was there was grateful to have incredible resources, to have amazing superiors, the smartest people ever worked above me. And I got to learn from, and there were travel opportunities. There was just so much to learn. And I truly believe that even if you're in a chapter that you hate, I didn't hate it, but even if you are someone like, everyone you meet knows something you don't even if it's to learn what you don't like, that's still valuable. It's still so valuable to get any pieces of the puzzle that tell you what you actually are good at, what you like, and what that the intersection is between both of those things. So I spent three years there and I think maybe what scares me the most looking back is that I, I wasn't unhappy but I wasn't happy, but I didn't know that I was really blinded by the gratitude and appreciation for how fancy the firm was. I was really blinded by how successful it looked, you know, everyone else thinks it's a really respectable job. So I was like, oh, maybe I do want to climb this ladder, like pride alone. And my sense of like, my identity was so wrapped up in productivity that I thought I do want to get a promotion. I do care about bonuses. Like I I want to climb this ladder and this is going to be my life. But It hit me one day when I looked at my superiors, like the immediate person who would be in the position, like if I got promoted, I would be in that person's job. And I realized I didn't want what they had. And I was like, oh, that's weird. If you don't want to progress at all, like if you don't want the next person, like the next position up from you, then what are you really there for? Like what, what does that say about your trajectory? And it really hit home when I got to uh, the chance with my husband. So he has a creative agency and he had worked on a huge campaign for YGAP who had, they do the Polish Man campaign, they did the Five Cent campaign and a lot of the process went to this school in rural Rwanda in Africa of all places. And we got to go on a trip which was absolutely incredible to spend a month in the school, which by the way, in your first year of law, you do not take time off. And I took a month off. So that was maybe a sign from early on. But (laughs) (laughs) when I got there, two things happened. The first thing was, I thought you would go to Africa and have that typical experience of, oh my gosh, they have very little here. We're so privileged back in the West, like have this huge reaction of appreciation, which of course you have on one level. But the biggest revelation I had was the reverse. It was actually that With so little, the children in Africa were happier than the children that I knew were back in Melbourne. Like they could play with a leaf for 12 hours and be purely joyful. Whereas we create problems to be anxious about. And then we're anxious that we don't have enough. Like it was just so interesting to see that with very little people could be happier than we are with so much. So that was my first, I reckon, trigger into what is happiness versus success. Like they're different things, they're not the same. And then I also came home with a gut gut parasite. Um, which I didn't realize was a thing. Um, I was really out of touch with wellness and balance and just working myself into the ground. I like would eat a broccoli and think that I'd done my wellness for the week, um, but then I wouldn't be sleeping and I'd be eating at my desk. And um, I ended up losing 15 kilos because my digestion was so screwed up and I didn't even realize until I fully collapsed at work and couldn't go back for a couple of weeks because I had adrenal fatigue. And in that process, I was banned from coffee because it would give me a panic attack. And I was kind of like, that was the crutch that I was that held me up at work. I was like, what am I going to do without coffee? Like, how am I going to get through this job? And um, the universe, as I mentioned before, you know, um, it always sort of has this divine timing. And I got sent to, when I did go back to work, I got sent to Hong Kong to work on a deal over there. And in Asia, matcha powder is a beautiful, healthier form of caffeination that's much gentler on your body, but available everywhere. So I got hooked on matcha. Couldn't believe that there was this amazing superfood that gave you a buzz like coffee, but didn't make you crash like you do sometimes with coffee. Nick came over, he got hooked. We came home like eight months later, we couldn't find it anywhere and... and in our own selfish search for an alternative um, that we could actually buy in Australia. We ended up starting a business because we bought too much and we needed to sell some. So we put it online and uh, that it was only because of that happy accident. I now call it that I realized by contrast, that what I did when I was using my creative brain made me so happy. And suddenly my law career, which I thought made me happy was actually just, okay. It wasn't bad, but it was okay. And that's when I realized people will not usually make a change unless they're actively unhappy. Because when you're actively unhappy, you have a motivation to do something about it. If you're just blah, you'll settle. Most of the time, you'll just keep going because it's comfortable. It's not great, but it's just fine. And I was like, fine is not enough we are not in this life to just be fine you know I can't believe that I was so blinded by all the shiny things that I was doing a job I realized I don't really care about I love the intellectual challenge but I'm not motivated by money and figures and deals like that's never been anything that's that turned me on or made my brain tick whereas creativity and wellness and connection and humans and journeys like that's Everything I've always been about, but I only realized because of a sliding doors moment. It was only because I literally broke down on the floor and got banned from a substance that I realized that. So that has made me in turn incredibly passionate about trying to help other people without having a breakdown, realize and break the autopilot circuit of the comfort zone and and look at their life and go, am I just choosing or am I just coasting? Um, And that's how the idea for CCA came about
0: so amazing Sarah and the common thing that I speak to people on the podcast about is when they've experienced burnout is like there's always been this pivotal moment where like a a switch has just been flicked and it's just opened up this whole new world of opportunities and I want to unpack everything with Matcha Maiden and obviously leaning into Matcha Milk Bar a little bit, but I've got a few questions about the burnout f- burnout phase before we go any further. How did that impact you mentally? Being able to being forced to slow down and not, you know, do the things that you were usually doing, being energized at Bunny beforehand how did how did that impact you of going into the slow lane mentally?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. It was the most humbling, frustrating eye-opening experience to realize that I my whole value to myself was defined by doing like when I suddenly couldn't do anything I was like who am I like all I've done in my whole life is just have output and be productive and when I'm not busy like I don't actually know how to value my time or myself and I think it's something a lot of A-type personalities go through you're so distracted by being busy that you have no radar for like do I actually feel good or not like busy just distracts you from whether you feel good or not and I had no concept of wellness or vitality because I was just busy and that was the only thing I used to measure myself so it was mentally probably the first time I'd ever had some vulnerability in terms of mental health like I'd always been so focused and purposeful and clear on what I thought was clear on what I was doing and what my purpose was to wake up every day that I'd never had to really sit in stillness and be like and be okay with going slow and not just slow but I mean like I couldn't get out of bed I was bedridden for the first few weeks and not being able to go to my job or you know do an email like it just was such a foreign feeling to lose your ability to do everything but it does also make you suddenly and I think COVID's done this for a lot of us too just the ability to get up out of bed is quite magic and We don't appreciate that because when it comes easy to you, you don't remember how bad it would feel if you couldn't. But that made me realize just how fragile your wellness is. Like it takes effort and you need to invest into your wellness for you to have the energy to get up every day. But I wasn't doing that. I'd just been taking, 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 and never really filling up the cup. I was just you know, as I said before, eating a piece of broccoli, smashing myself at the gym. And then I was like, tick, I'm done. Like I should be, you know, the picture of health. Cause I've done like <laughs> six spin classes this week, but actually I think my dedication to wellness and fitness back then was actually probably worse for my wellness. Cause I'd fit it in, in, you know, in place of sleeping. Cause I'd get up like hours before work to go. And, you know, it just had this, like such a superficial understanding of what it took to feel my best. So I think what people often say is, you know, sometimes you have to break things to put them back together. And that's what I think burnout is for a lot of people. The first, I would love to say, I think people sometimes wear it as a bit of a badge. I think it's an awful thing to have to go through. And I wish that it wasn't a rite of passage. I wish that you could implant this knowledge into people's heads so that they could realize it before they hit that point. But sometimes we're stubborn, you know, sometimes it does take completely like, life will teach you something over and over until you learn the lesson. And I think I'd been getting signs for years. I just ignored them. And life was like, she's not going to learn that she has limits unless we literally make her stop. So it was a rude awakening. It was um, mentally incredibly difficult. It involved totally rebuilding my identity. And I still get frustrated now with like, (laughs) this is actually horrible. But I had glandular fever first when I was eight. Like I burnt myself out when I was eight years old. So when you look back at my life, it's been a very common theme. I've had it since like maybe four times. So I clearly don't learn the first time. But if I didn't have those like reminders that I'm pushing my limits, I wouldn't know how to manage them now. I, you know, I'm I kind of feel like I'm glad I had them early because otherwise I would have them when I have a child or when, you know, I can't just be bedridden for a while and, and learn how to look after myself. So it it totally revolutionized my relationship with myself. I had to really go from the ground up of like, okay, well, what does it take to be well? What is the right relationship with exercise? You can't just spin yourself into a frenzy. Like maybe I need some yoga. Maybe I need some yang, like some yin to balance the yang. Maybe I need to do some like slower things, meditation. Um, Maybe you do actually need to take the weekend off. Like rest is a thing I'd never thought about before. I just had never conceived of myself as having limits because when you're younger, you don't. Um, And it was a very, very slow process. I reckon it took the whole of the next year and continues now, but definitely in a dramatic way. That whole first year was testing the waters of what's the right nutrition to build myself back up again. Um, What is the right balance of exercise? I can't spin six times a week. I mean, that's stupid. My constitution just doesn't like that. Like, why was I doing it? Why? Like, why was I doing all these things that felt bad and thinking just because I ticked a box that they were good? And that's when I, yeah, I discovered um, all kinds of, you know, I really got into acupuncture and Chinese medicine. Meditation became such a big part of my life. I could only survive my career with meditation. Um, Taking, you know, weekends off was quite revolutionary at the time. So, yeah, it was probably the hardest thing up until that point in my life that I'd ever been through. And I still sometimes feel a bit like these limits are new. And I'm a bit offended that I do have them. <laughs> but but um I also think if I did ever go back to that burn the burning the candle at both ends part, like you totally strip yourself of the ability to enjoy anything because you're just tired all the time. And that's yeah. it's not what it's all about, you know. I often have to remind myself, you're not here to work and die. Like that's just not the point of life.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's so so true, Sarah. And like often we're so disconnected from how We're supposed to feel, and we get, you know, like I'll use your words from earlier in the podcast when you said we just settle, like we get used to just living this same routine in life, and we don't even know if we're truly happy. We don't even know what we're feeling because we're so disconnected. And that's a big part of my philosophy coming through from a movement point of view, and obviously through the podcast and everything is trying to align holistic health care and everything in your life into one big, you know, ball of mess for lack of a better term (laughs) they're not separate pillars if you can align them to make sure that you're you know getting the most out of it like obviously they're investing in yourself in terms of eating well and, and moving your body is going to entail make you better at the things that you're doing, like playing with your kids or better at your job. So, like, it, it all merges into one. And, and often I think I see this a lot as well as we we think of them as completely different fields. But once we start to, you know, align them together, that's when, you know, the magic happens and that's when we start to create this whole holistic lifestyle that, you know, makes us live happier, healthier, longer lives.
1: Totally. Totally. And I think the other thing is because I did come from a place of thinking in such a superficial way about wellness, I think I've also realized like in that whole period of learning to block out just sticking rigidly to like diets or plans or, you know, there are so many kind of regimes that people stick really rigid to blindly and don't actually listen to the feedback their body's giving them about whether it works or not for them with that whole trial and error year that I went through, I realized like we're all made of different stuff, right? Like we don't like the same foods. Why would we like the same exercise? And why would we like the same, you know, we all just have such different tastes that I don't understand why we all stick to these like exercise plans or food plans blindly and don't tailor those to ourselves as well. So my biggest thing has been try and block out, I mean, take advice, obviously take advice from like broad sources and get inspiration and ideas from as many people as you can, but no one can really tell you what's the best thing for your body without you just trying it out. Like you won't know if you're, if you like running more than you like, you know, yoga versus Pilates versus whatever, unless you just try it and see what your body does. And There's no point sticking to paleo or vegan or whatever if your body tries it and doesn't like it. Like just listen, your body's so smart. It will give you the data that you need to make good decisions. You just have to listen to it. And I just ignored it for so many years. And the best thing I've done is like, if it gives me feedback, just listen to it. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. Like someone might tell you that mushrooms are the best thing in the world, but if you can't stand the taste, like don't ruin your life, trying to eat mushrooms every day. Just, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you're your, yeah, your so own true. research experiment and just like figure out what works for you. Try things and try things and rule them out, but don't just blindly stick to anything without giving it a go.
0: Yeah, totally. You hit the nail on the head there, my friend. I, I, I could not agree more with that. And, you know, often as, as adults, we, or not even adults, everyone, we get caught up in the latest craze and we see these things and we see how it worked for someone and we automatically think it's going to work for them. But we have our own unique biology and that's what makes us different and we often don't ask ourselves how do we want to feel and I'll use exercise as as an example. A little questionnaire that I send out to my clients before they join with me is how do you want to feel and people like think that's that's wacky to ask that sort of question but how do you want to feel when you leave exercise i think that's one of the most important questions that we should ask ourselves on a daily basis is how do you want to feel because that's our why and then once we've got our why we can develop the process towards getting there
1: totally totally
0: so so good. Now I'd love to head back into this Matcha Maiden course and how this came about, and how you ditched the concrete jungle and you you went into entrepreneurship. Talk to us talk to us a little bit about that sort of transition and what sort of challenges and setbacks you faced on the way, if there were any.
1: Yes. Oh my God, many. Um, <laughs> I feel like your story is always more defined by the setbacks than than the successes. But yeah, it was a. I mean a very fast but also a very gradual process we pretty much started uh, as a very very DIY hobby on the side project um, kind of set up like we didn't ever expect that anything would really happen with the business I mean and we didn't even call it a business it was because we ordered 10 kilos of matcha for ourselves it was an enormous amount of powder and we just thought like what's a creative way that we can kind of get rid of some of it and I think also I was still a little bit in that mindset of ticking boxes. Like I thought if I sell one bag on LinkedIn, I can put it on my you know page that I'm an entrepreneur because I've sold one bag to someone like, that's all I need to say. I'm a business person. <laughs> Tick done business. Okay. Go back to my life. Uh, so, <laughs> Like literally I was, I was a serial resume patter and I was still, you know, I was there for it. I was like, I don't care how many I sell. I just want to be able to say that I'm an entrepreneur. So, so which like totally it was all I cared about at the time was like sell one bag but I think that that's now the mentality that actually helps me do other stuff is I realized if you only focus on that one bag then you actually start if you focused on trying to build an empire like you would never begin because you'd be so scared and the risk is so big and it's so overwhelming like I've actually learned that that helped us get started the fact that we didn't take it that seriously because I wasn't like holding it to this perfection standard that I held everything else So we, I think we had our original logo on a serviette. Like it was very casual. Nick had all the, you know, abilities in house to build the website, build an online store. We scribbled out the logos. Um, everything was just Google. Like, I know it sounds like this romanticized story, but it actually is, it's how it works. So many businesses start from just Googling what you need. So we realized we had the tea. What do you put the powder in? You have to find bags. How do you seal the bags? You need a bag sealer. What labels do you put on there? Like we literally took it one step at a time because one step at a time is all you actually need to focus on. And we started packing it ourselves in a friend's commercial kitchen. Um, We were doing it just, you know, after I would finish work or on the weekends and Nick ran his own business. So he was a little bit more flexible than me. So he did a lot of it while I was at the office. And then I would sort of use my lunch break to run down to the post office And it just went from, like, we launched online. I think we, I had a lot of time in front of a computer. So I started the Instagram and was able to start getting a bit of a hype going before we launched. And then we launched, um, gosh, I think it was like the last week of November, maybe. And it sold out in a week. It just turned out that there was a combination of really good timing and also, the fact that we were our target market because we were the ones who wanted it also meant that we made good decisions based on on our customer. It turned out so many other people had heard of Matcha just like we had, but had been waiting for someone to make it available. So it sold out like sooner than we ever could have imagined as in our own stash also got used. And we were so sure that it wouldn't work out that we didn't even have the supplier's details because we just didn't think we'd ever need to reorder. So it was a mad scramble to keep up and sort of get our heads around the idea that it was actually, we were making actual sales to actual strangers. And I still think that from that point until now, we still feel that way. I'm still like, how the hell did that thing turn into this? Like, I still don't actually understand that real people are buying our products.
0: What a pinch me moment
1: such an almost almost not a pinch me moment because it was so surreal that we didn't even do the pinching until like months and months later because we just were so stressed about like <laughs> oh my god we've put this thing out into the world without being prepared for anything like we were still I still was at the law firm we're trying to pack like hundreds of orders at night you know it was like the middle of summer so we're in our jocks so that we like we wouldn't sweat into the bags and it was just <laughs> it was like a disaster like so DIY and unglamorous <laughs> you got to do what you got to do to keep up with demand. And, and I did that for six months and it just kept growing and growing. And we ended up getting into Urban Outfitters in the States because the digital world is so wonderful. I mean, it allows people like Urban Outfitters to find this couple in Melbourne packing in their undies. But because... <laughs> You know, I I truly believe in the fake it till you make it thing. Like our branding was beautiful. Everything looked polished and shiny on the outside, even though it was completely like a disaster on the inside. We're like those ducks, you know, on the top of the water, everything was smooth, but underneath our, our, you know, we were just paddling wildly. And it was when the Urban Outfitters contract came through and we realised it was for more units than we'd sold that entire time, like the whole six months, that it was going to be impossible unless one of us... go full-time to actually pack it because we didn't have packers then and until then they'd been it hadn't been mutually exclusive we'd been able to do both and I actually look back and think I'm glad I stayed that long because you know we're so insta gratuity focused these days we all want to like we've started business we want to go full-time we want it all to happen overnight but staying that long and doing both as long as we could actually meant that we had more capital you know the risk of jumping was a lot smaller by then because we had more proof that it was there was demand and the market was, you know, the product was a good idea. But at that point, it was like either say no to urban outfitters or leave your job. And so um, it, a mad 24 hours pass of, you know, I'm not very good at making decisions without polling every single person I know. I like need to do a survey before I can make a decision. But, and it was agonizing at the time. Now I look back and it was the easiest decision I ever made because again, coming back to that whole, what's the once in a lifetime opportunity, Lawyers and taxes are the two things in life that are never going to go anywhere, but how often do you get an opportunity to run with a, a, a small business that has been picked up by Urban Outfitters in the States before any other competitor is really on the market? So that was when I left. I resigned the next day.
0: That's incredible. I can just picture you packing boxes with your mum on your shoulder like the little devil and angel telling you, you've got a once-in-your-lifetime opportunity here, so take <laughs> the offer. <laughs>
1: Except that she was literally on my shoulder. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this is why I always say, you know, the some of the five people you spend the most time with, because the people who I consulted in that time are the people who were either going to help me make the decision that it was too risky or help me make the decision that it was the best idea ever. And I would have listened. My decision would have totally been shaped by the people I, whose advice I really valued. So if mum had been totally against it and thought it was silly, I probably wouldn't have done it. But because she was so supportive and all my closest friends were so supportive and Nick was so influential, like his, him being from a world where everything is risky and nothing is certain but he'd been able to survive was such a good example for me because in my law circle, we're so risk averse. Our job was to be risk averse, to highlight everything that's going to go wrong. So, if I'd been left to my own devices, I would definitely have just gone with what my brain knew, which was certainty. But yeah, surrounding yourself with people who are going to help you make the decision you want to make is so
0: important. It's so, so true that risk, sort of reward situation is really, really pivotal. And, you know, like, we have to experience things before we can know the opposite counterpart so like if we're climbing a tree we have to fall down to know that it's not safe if we didn't fall down we wouldn't know that it wasn't safe you know what i mean so that's the same sort of approach we we should take with our life like not every time it's highly personalized depending on the the risk reward Mm. situation but having that mentality i think is is really really awesome and as humans we often want to go all or nothing don't we like you mentioned earlier how like you, you were really grateful that you didn't quit your job and you didn't go all into this, um, to match a maiden straight away. You sort of let the process happening happened over time. What's some advice for people out there that are sitting there pondering about something that they're really enjoying doing and they want to transition it into a little side hustle or even just like creating a hobby and things like that? What, what's your advice for people like that in terms of not having that all or nothing mindset and really enjoying it along the way as well?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I think um you know, once upon a time I would have been really tempted to be like just jump, done is better than perfect, like just, you know, YOLO. But I also think um sometimes that's unrealistic. Like people have bills, often, you know, I didn't have children at the time, you might have dependents. Like there are real life obligations and responsibilities. So I think the smaller you can make the jump for yourself, the better. So if you are in a position where you can, like some side hustles are completely consuming and you can't not do them full time from the beginning. But if you can stay in your job as long as you can, save money, like get capital to fund the business. I, I now looking back, I would have wanted to jump straight away, but I'm so glad I didn't. Uh, I don't think you need to jump straight away because also the other thing is, Your business from the beginning, very few, I mean, even though ours did really well, very few of them have enough work for you to do full-time all day, every day. Like, you need to grow the demand to the point where it's actually, you know, you don't want to leave your job and then have nothing to do all day because there's not enough going on. So, yeah, I think just look at your circumstances and do a risk analysis. Like look at your financial position, look at your savings, look at your outgoings, look at where you live. You know, we all have different things that will contribute to our decision and consult as many people who have done it before and see what their advice and their experience is. I would definitely say hedge, you know, hedge, like lower the risks as much as you can, because then it's a much easier jump and you don't, I don't, you know, I've obviously walked away from being a complete certainty, loving, person who couldn't take any risks, but I also don't want to take silly risks that then give the business not a very good chance of working because you don't have the capital because you can't do the scaling. So yeah, I think it doesn't, it definitely doesn't have to be an all or nothing jump. You can grow into it. And in fact, growing into it actually gives you time to feel more confident because um, you've got more evidence behind you.
0: Yeah, such crucial bits of advice Sarah, and I think it's really, really relevant at this point in time now that you know we've been forced with this abundance of time and we can't use the excuse like oh, I don't have time anymore because there's literally a plethora of it. You're not doing anything else, which is a magical yeah. part of this lockdown. I think like encouraging people to take those small steps and they don't have to go all or nothing is really, really amazing. And you can see how it can flourish in in that time once you sort of working almost like a double life to create the end goal I guess Mm, yeah totally and on the opposite side of that entrepreneurship like obviously has some challenges that come from within because you are your own boss you sort of dictate your own hours one of the sort of things that I've found in terms of running my own business is sort of needing or placing this perception on myself that I need to be on 100% of the time. And like, obviously Mm -hmm. we know that that's the literal catalyst for disaster. So how do we swing the balance and ensure that, you know, we're still maintaining that sort of self-care holistic life and incorporating those things, even when we love what we do, because it can be super, super hard, like stepping away when you love what you do, but you almost like sort of need to, to invest in that. So what's some advice for some listeners out there as well?
1: Yeah, great question. I think that's still probably the thing I struggle with the most is it's actually harder when you love what you do to rest, because when you you know aren't super invested in your job, you, you're excited to clock off. When you love what you do, you don't want to, like there's absolutely no incentive. And when it's your own business, your labor directly impacts how much you get back out of it. So you really do just want to go you know, full speed ahead as often as you can, because you can see the results of it, as opposed to in an organization where you don't necessarily get the direct benefit of you putting in extra effort. I think the biggest thing I've had to learn is that there's absolutely no point going at 110% if you can only last for a couple of months before you totally burn out and then wipe yourself off to 0%. It's better if, you you know, I'd much rather have just been at 80% that whole time, but be able to sustain it. I think you just have to choose a pace that's sustainable. Maybe not the pace that you want to go at, but no one can go at 110% for very long. And if you do, it's at the expense of freshness and good ideas. Like you, you, if you're too consumed by what you do, there's no perspective to be able to like stay fresh. I just don't think any creative can stay fresh without getting some space. Whether or not you burn out from a physical perspective, like your brain will eventually get tired from just the same old, same old. So What I've learned is I used to say, listen to your body. I now say, listen, like your body is probably going to trick you with adrenaline because I used to listen to my body and my body would say, this is amazing. You love it. Like keep going. Your body can like give you false energy when you're excited and it will, that they're the things that when you actually need to in the early days, of course, you do need to pull a little bit of longer hours. That's the energy that will get you through when you really need to but as you get a little bit more established, you do just need to trust that like the world is not going to come crashing down around you if you take a day off. Like very, very few things in life are as urgent as we think they are. And if you're not a paramedic or a heart surgeon, like most things aren't life or death. So if people don't get their matcha, like nothing is going to happen. So why do I kind of kill myself to actually make that happen when there's really no difference to anyone else in the world, except the detriment to me. And it's taken a really long time to learn that, but I think what I've had to do instead is because I can't trust my body to give me the signs until it's too late, is to literally build in rest and downtime and space from the business to build it into my kind of calendar before I need it up because I won't know that I need it until it's too late. So I just need to build in, maybe not like, you know, I think people think you need to make big drastic changes. I don't mean like build in a sabbatical where you go on a silent meditation retreat for like a month or, you know, it doesn't need to be that big, just build in like half an hour a day or half, half a day of the weekend or whatever it is for you. Again, trial and error, like just work out what actually works for you. But I often, I could work seven days if I wanted to, because I love what I do, but inevitably I would lose the creativity and the juice like the, you know, those juices aren't flowing when you're just doing it all the time. So I build in days off the whole of Sunday. I really have to be disciplined to just not think about work, to not look at my devices, to not trigger myself, to think about work, to just give myself time to indulge in what I call play, go back to those things that make you forget what time it is, be completely consumed in something that you don't care about being good at improving at making progress in like, just let yourself have time where you disconnect. And I think the evidence for me, you will grow enough evidence in your own experience that shows that your best ideas come after those times. My best ideas ever have been after a break, because that's when you get some space, you come away from what you're doing. And instead of working in the business, you can work on it. So I think be really vigilant about booking in time and don't wait until you need it, because that's usually too late.
0: Yes, amazing bits of advice there, Sarah, and I'm having like these aha moments because I experienced this prior to three or four months ago. I was involved with um, a business partner of mine setting up the Klein Butcher, which is a, a vegan butcher shop in Ascot Vale, and like that was amazing. I love the opportunity to be able to be involved in the business side of things and and like much the same as you, so I have that entrepreneur hat on and like I just completely immersed myself in this sort of business side of things and I loved plant-based nutrition so much I thought it was really aligned and I found myself having to step away from it because I was well and truly burning the candle at both ends and it wasn't until I look back now and, and realize that how unhealthy my lifestyle was through that period of time I was ticking a box with so many different things I was literally surviving off coffee but I loved what I did so much that I didn't feel like i needed to have a break and then it come to a crashing point for me and and i had to make that fork in the road decision of which way i want to go and like i think it's really really important to be able to have longevity with something like that which is like a business is a long-term venture like it's something that you're going to do from you know from the most part of your life so thinking long term is is definitely going to benefit you
1: yeah totally yeah it's a marathon not a sprint and yeah if you do try and go out too hard too fast it's never really worked well for anyone inevitably something will stop you in your body and yeah I think um again I hope I hope that some people listening don't have to hit that burnout point before they realize (laughs) that they're not invincible but um that's definitely the way I've learned
0: yeah so so true now so coming to the end of the podcast I'm really really intrigued how your definition of success has changed from when you were working the nine to five or nine to nine probably as a lawyer to now, you know, running your own business. How's your definition of success changed? So drastically
1: actually. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if it's not so much that my definition of success has changed, but that my metric of life in general has changed. I don't even sort of aspire to success like I once did. I think success gets really wrapped up in financial metrics and titles and like, you know, climbing ladders and promotions and really like things that are are box ticking, really. And they're important. Of course, they're so important. And of course, you want things to be a success. And of course, you know, it's your livelihood as well. But I think what's happened is rather than focusing purely on that success, I also just have this hugely dominant metric now of fulfilment. Like there's no point in having success without fulfillment, whereas before I would only look at success and think that was enough. But if you're wildly wealthy and doing really well and hitting all these milestones, but it makes you desperately unhappy, what is the point of that? Like there is no point because you can't enjoy it. It, There's no point being unhappy for your whole life just to make a lot of money that you're not even going to enjoy using. So I think my definition of success has probably changed to something more that looks more like that has an, an element of fulfillment and enjoyment and also using your talents but the ones that light you up not just the ones that you happen to have I think often we think if we're good at something we have to do it and of course you want to use your talents and make the most of them but if it actually makes you unhappy then then don't don't feel an obligation to do something that you really don't like doing um but I think also it's more that success isn't the only thing I strive for. It also is balance and joy and connection and, yeah, and overall just the feeling of being fulfilled and living a full life that's beyond just whether other people can measure it as a successful life or not.
0: Love it. I couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. Now, this next question I actually have stolen from your podcast because I love it so much. (laughs) And and that's who are you when you're not working and what sort of makes your heart sing when you're not at work?
1: Oh, yes. Gosh, such a good question. And again, this is very new for me. I didn't have an identity outside of work before. I didn't even know that I needed one, let alone actually making an effort to cultivate that identity. But I absolutely love reading. And I, I think law really not killed my love for it but just there was so much reading in the job that I stopped reading for leisure and I think it happens to a lot of lawyers but I've rekindled my joy of reading I love crime like I love true crime I love crime fiction I love crime shows on Netflix I love crime documentaries and like it's such a weird anti-yay part of my life that I love serial killers but I am so at peace when I'm reading a book I love to read I love just like lying with our dog beautiful golden retriever Paul and just reading a book for hours and hours and that really makes me forget what time it is I love family time and we have obviously as I mentioned really strong roots in the country and I love just getting out of the city and you know stay we spend my mom my aunties we all go to where the town where they grew up in country Victoria and just like wear no shoes and read books and wander through the gardens and, you know, just like enjoy nature. I love just being really detached, I think, from time and obligations and the to-do list. That's when I'm like really, really me. And, and one of the big things I've realised as well is that I've always loved languages and I love people and connections so much that one of my ultimate joys, that when I feel my most me, is when I'm travelling. When I'm in a country where I don't speak the language and I'm trying to learn it or learn how a new culture communicates with each other and like absorbing new smells and new cuisines and new ways of life. And I, I, that's just my ultimate joy. And obviously we haven't been able to do that much this year. So there's been a lot of books and a lot of gardening and a lot of, (laughs) I love crosswords, a lot of Netflix, um, a lot of time with the family, but um, Nick and I really, really do kind of consolidate our life through travel and that's something that we love to do together. So hopefully we'll be able to do that
0: sometime soon. Definitely. And everyone's going to appreciate that human connection. Well, we already are. We've seen in Melbourne, like after being deprived of it, quote unquote, deprived of it for so long, we've seen mm. people like come together. And, and it's been amazing in that travel aspect as well. Definitely can't wait to get back overseas. Now, Sarah, I mentioned earlier, you've got the CZA podcast. You've just released the CZA book. Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm so, so excited to get my hands on that.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's been wild. I could never have imagined when I was writing it that it would come out in the middle of a pandemic when everything, every single message about it is probably more relevant than I ever knew it would be. It's actually worked out so well because the book is just the longer firm longer form version of that the philosophy that the podcast is based on which is the idea of just getting off the autopilot circuit getting off that productivity hamster wheel pausing for a minute taking stock of your life and and choosing what you put back into it and and focusing more on what makes you joyful what lights you up rather than just what looks successful on the outside or what ticks certain boxes of societal norms so it kind of goes through 12 chapters of all the different major themes I think that kind of hold us back so the first is self-doubt the next is comparison with others the next is you know the right network and environment and it just builds on all the common themes that seem to come out in the conversations on the podcast about people who are living not just successful lives but lives they're really in love with that they obviously have shit moments like everyone does happiness and joy isn't about not having problems but just having really good tools and strategies to deal with them and I think the book is just a collection of those, of learnings from different people's stories, from my own stories, like weaving those aha moments in and trying to spark them in others.
0: Yeah, absolutely love that. And I, the universe works in amazing ways, having this release at the start of a pandemic, which some would say, wow, that's super, super challenging. But I think it's really, really aligned well, because people are more receptive to bettering themselves now I feel and people are more open to change at the moment because we've been literally forced to change our lives has been on hold totally
1: and I think they're also in a world that's become very very digital and very fast where people don't actually make time for leisure and things like reading are not really as common anymore I think everyone has taken a little bit of a moment to stop and think like maybe I shouldn't always be doing and just going faster and faster maybe I should stop and read a book and just reflect and just take stock in a way that we don't really, we don't make time for that. There's not even, you know, parts of the year that once upon a time were quieter, like January, where everyone would kind of close up and just reflect on the year and maybe make new resolutions. Like everyone just works through now. And it's, you know, just a crazy pace that you can't really keep up with. So I think it's um, as terrible as it's been and you you would never wish that it happened this way. It has happened, and I think um, all we can do now is look for the silver linings, and I think there will be many that come out over the next few years.
0: Definitely. I was saying to my girlfriend yesterday, I can't wait for the 2020 documentary about this whole year. It's It's going to be amazing. (laughs) Oh, my God. It would
1: have to be like an epic 12-part movie like lord of the rings vibes to <laughs> cover all of the things that have happened
0: <laughs> so so true and we've said we've seen it with nature how rejuvenating this slowdown has been and and looking at those silver linings i think is getting people through this situation yeah yeah
1: absolutely
0: Sarah, this has been an absolute treat. I'm so grateful i got to sit down and, and pick your brain and I've listened to your podcast for so long. So having the ability to interview you is like a pinch myself moment. So thank you so oh, much. stop. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. They've just been such interesting, thought-provoking questions. It's always just such a pleasure to have someone else ask you questions because i think we don't stop even in our own even though like i mean i talk about taking stock all the time but i don't actually do it i mean i don't listen to my own advice that often <laughs> like that would be way too easy yeah. so these chats really give me an occasion as well to think about my answers i don't really think about my answers that often so thank you so much as well for taking the time to research and and be so interested and support the podcast at means
0: Wow, I couldn't think of a better podcast to close out 2020 than that one. Thank you, Sarah, for giving me the opportunity to pick your brain and share your story with the Euphoria Health community. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast this week, friends, and the content we unpacked throughout the course of the year. Thank you all again for the overwhelming support this year. I cannot wait to reconnect in. 2021 and jump on that health ride with you all i'm wishing you all a merry christmas and a happy new year stay safe stay well and enjoy the time with family friends and loved ones say yes to that glass of wine say yes to that run say yes to enjoying summer and i'll see you all in 2021